Welcome to the Bold Speak Podcast. I'm Anthony Creedon. Today on the podcast, we're going to discuss Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 15, and discuss the true nature of freedom in opposition to the way we traditionally have understood what it means to be free. And on the wire, I'm going to briefly touch on the New York abortion laws and what they say about where society is headed. And I have to say, it doesn't look good. All that next as we give them the bold speak. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our study of No Other Gospel. Uh, Today's an important study in our analysis of Galatians, since today Paul is going to strike a balance in his message. So far, Paul has emphasized the importance of understanding the gospel as a free gift of God. And countless times, he's shown us that the law is never a means to restore our relationship with God. But the significance of that point must be balanced with a natural question. If the law doesn't save us, then what is the purpose of the law? Why do we even need it? And Paul's answer is freedom. So if you have your study guides, go ahead and open them up to Lesson 7, beginning on page 32. Uh, As always, if you haven't picked up your copy of the study guide, you can do so on our website, www.theboldspeak.com. There you can find this study guide and others by clicking on the Shop button at the top of the page. Uh, There you're going to find this study guide for only $10, and then you can follow along and take some notes and get a few more details on Paul's message here in Galatians. All right, so let's go ahead and and jump in here to Galatians chapter 5. As we get into this, I want to make sure that we're paying attention to what Paul is speaking to us about the nature of the freedom we have in the gospel. Uh, This is carrying through in the conversation he's been having about the freedom we have in the gospel and the reality of what Christ has done for us by setting us free from sin, the death, and the devil. But what he's going to talk about here as we jump in is if we have this freedom, what does it mean to be free in Christ? And and what's the consequence of that as we live out our daily lives with each other? All right, so this is Galatians chapter 5. We're going to just begin by reading the first section here, verses 1 through 6. As always, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. So if you'd like to follow along, uh, you can go ahead and pull out your Bible now and prepare for that. And as always, if you're driving or just simply unable to get to a Bible, do not worry. I will read it to you so that you can follow along with us. All right, so here we go. This is Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This brings us to question one. What is Paul saying in verse two? And why is it so important for us to understand this point? 
Uh, let me go back and refresh your memory. Paul says this in verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Uh, to be put kind of short and sweet, this is Paul's entire point. If you begin to look at your own actions in order to find the assurance of salvation, you render Christ's work absolutely useless. The reason is because you now save yourself. If it was simply a matter of doing the right things and following the right ceremonies, like, for instance, getting circumcised, then why did we need Jesus at all? Because we can't save ourselves. Look, there is absolutely nothing we can do to bring about the assurance of our salvation. And it's this truth that is critical for us to understand. If we rely upon ourselves for salvation, then we end up relying less on God. It becomes what we call a zero-sum game, right? It's a, it's a measure of percentages, right? If, if we were to think about uh, how are we saved, we were to look at it as if we contributed something, then, then how does this work? Do, do we contribute 20% and then Jesus puts forward 80%? Well, then what if it's 30% and Jesus is 70%? What if we do 90% and then Jesus only kicks in that last 10? Where does it end? And eventually, if we see it as a zero-sum game and we see it as how much effort we contribute to this and how much we put into us, is there a possibility that we would come to a point, as Paul points out, where Jesus isn't even necessary? We can just do it all on our own. And this is why he continues on, and this gets to the next question, question two, where it says, how does the answer to the last question relate to what Paul is saying in verse three? Let me remind you. Verse three says this, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. See, when we play this game with our works, when we play this game with our achievements and how we relate to salvation by the things that we do, we end up putting ourselves in a position where we have to realize this. If it is, in fact, about the law, then we must complete the entire thing. If, if we only do, let's say, 83% of the law, then are we only 83% saved? And who kicks the rest of that in? See, this is the problem. If salvation comes by the law, then you are obligated to follow the entire law in order to be saved by it. And if that is truly the case, then we all have a really big problem. Because we were breaking the law before we even realized that we were breaking the law. So we started at a deficit. And our understanding of original sin and the realities of, of sin kind of pervading our life make this possibility of us doing anything to contribute anything to our salvation absolutely impossible. We have no hope of salvation outside of Christ. And this is why Paul continues the way he does. Especially in verse 6 when he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Ladies and gentlemen, faith is our only hope of salvation. To confess faith in the promise of Jesus Christ, to confess faith in believing that what he did worked, and we now have a restored relationship with God because of it. And it's by that alone that we have any hope. But now all of Paul's frustrations over this entire matter are going to come out in this next section. In verses 7 to 12, you're going to see this passionate and, and frustrated side of Paul. 
So let's read through that. This is Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. You who were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Harsh. I mean, it's with this kind of passion that, that Paul wants to draw us into the, the, the real uh, disappointing part of this conversation and this whole interaction that the Galatian church has had with the Judaizers. So this gets to question three. What is the importance of Paul's warning in verse nine? Let's review. In verse nine, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The answer is this. You have to understand that that sin or bad theology is pervasive. That's to say that one lie can begin to work its way into the rest of our thinking and do far more damage than it initially appeared that it would do. And this is how leaven works, right? In a comparative basis to the entire lump of dough, the amount of leaven needed to give rise to the dough is, is minimal. But as leaven works, it gives rise to the dough when the chemicals mix and multiply the air bubbles. It doesn't take much, but it can drastically change the makeup of the bread. In the same way sin gets mixed into our lives, lies get mixed into our theology. They spread and create false belief, different and more lies, misunderstandings, fear that then pervades our thinking and influences our actions. The problem is that like real leaven, what it produces is just air. Sin makes gaps in the truth, which leaves room for all sorts of bad things. And what we perceive to be real just ends up being nothing but a deception that leads us away from Christ and his saving work. The idea that circumcision was necessary, that was that little lie that air bubble that made room for doubt to creep its way into the thinking of the Galatian church. When they began to believe that circumcision was needed in order to be saved, it left room for all sorts of other questions. That is to say, more air bubbles. Questions began to arise like, well, is circumcision all I need to do or is there more? Because I wasn't born into the Jewish nation, do I even have a shot at salvation? Or, if Paul didn't tell us about this, what else did he not tell us? Can he even be believed? See, all these questions created a stumbling block for the gospel of Jesus Christ to take root in the hearts of these believers. And if we're not careful, the use of the law in salvation and in the salvation story can create that kind of doubt in our hearts and the hearts of others as well as we try to explain what it means to be saved. This is what Paul's getting to. The insertion of the law, the insertion of works into salvation is a dangerous, dangerous game. Not the least of which dangerous because it builds within us a sense of self-confidence and self-reliance that pulls us away from Jesus. And that simply cannot happen. 
Now, you, you can see Paul's incredible anger and frustration, in particular in verse 12. And that's question four, which is more of just kind of a statement of uh, kind of surprise when you read this. And the question reads this. So um, what's with verse 12? All right. Uh, this is uh, Paul's frustration and his wit at its finest, right? Understanding the context and, and the nature of the issue with the Judaizers, right? In particular, circumcision. Paul takes the opportunity to, to play on that context in wishing of uh, some judgment upon the Judaizers. In other words, if removing the foreskin is so important to them, he wishes the knife would slip and they just cut the whole thing off. It's not Paul's most gracious statement, but it does illustrate beautifully the human emotions that Paul takes to this situation. When men come in and mess with this congregation and misrepresent the gospel of Jesus Christ, he is upset and he is not afraid to show it. All right. From there, let's move on and finish out this section by reading verses 13 to 15. And this is where Paul's going to begin this conversation on the nature of freedom. All right, so here we go. This is Galatians 5, verses 13 to 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Question 5. On the basis of verse 13, how does Paul define freedom? Let's take a look at 13 again. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Uh, Paul here defines freedom in a very specific way. Freedom is the availability for us to serve others in love. In other words, we are free to be slaves, slaves to each other, slaves to helping and aiding each other. The reason that we have this freedom in the gospel and, and, and what it brings to us is a freedom that we don't have to suffer the guilt and the shame associated with the sin that plagues humanity. And with that freedom comes a release, a release that we're not constantly looking over our shoulders to, to see if God loves us, to see if we've done enough. And so now that we're free from that, we have an opportunity to focus where we should be focused during our life here on earth, and that's toward one another. To, to care for each other, to love, to support each other. And so freedom doesn't look like an ability for me to do anything. Freedom is my ability to do what I need to do, what I can do, to love and serve others. And that's very, very different than the way we're used to thinking about freedom. And that actually gets us to, to question six. How does Paul's definition of freedom match the way freedom is used in our society? Essentially, here's what we need to get to. For many, freedom is likened to the word liberty. Right? And to me, there's a big difference between the two. Liberty is associated with an individual's right to do or not do something. In this sense, uh, liberty is not concerned with the needs of others, although one may take that into consideration. But liberty only asks on behalf of the individual what is permitted and what's not permitted. So liberty demands realities on the basis of rights, all right? Liberty just asks, can I do this? Freedom, however, is very different. 
Rather than asking the question of liberty, can I do this? Freedom asks, should I do this? See, freedom is concerned not with the individual alone, but with the collective. While freedom may recognize that an individual action is good for the individual, it may also say that such an action is not good for others. So freedom may result in the ability to refrain from such an action in order to allow for the best overall result for all involved. All right, to, to, to illustrate this, there's a lot of things that Paul references and, and talks about throughout his letters. And one of the major places that he addresses this is in 1 Corinthians 8. And that's what we're going to take a look at in the next podcast. We're going to spend some time in 1 Corinthians 8, kind of breaking this down. What does it mean to be free, to have the availability to do something, but just because you have the availability doesn't mean that you should do that thing, right? All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And that's what we're going to address and talk about more next time. So I really hope you join me as we continue this study of No Other Gospel and, and continue with Galatians 5 and, and take a look at what it means to have freedom in the gospel. All right. Uh, so now, uh, moving into The Wire. If, if you've been on the internet or watched the news over the last couple of weeks, it's no doubt that you have heard about all the adjustments to New York's abortion laws. And while everyone, as usual, seems to have their own opinions, I think it's important, as usual, to fully consider what's at stake here. So let's do that, shall we? Let's take a look at the abortion laws in New York on this edition of The Wire. On January 22nd, Governor Andrew Cuomo signed what was termed a Reproductive Health Act into legislation in the state of New York. This supposed Health Act modified existing abortion legislation, effectively removing abortion from the New York State Penal Code. In other words, abortion is now a matter of public health and not in any way associated with criminal activity. Which is, by the way, New York's way of saying that your feelings on abortion are the equivalent to how you feel when someone doesn't pick up dog poop after their animal does their business in the park. So, let's look at this legislation in more detail, shall we? I'll post the link to the actual legislation in the comments of this episode so you can see this for yourself. Alright, the, the major change that has caught the attention of so many is the change to what constitutes a legal abortion beyond the former 24-week period. The new legislation states this. A healthcare practitioner licensed, certified, or authorized under Title VIII of the Education Law, acting within his or her lawful scope of practice, may perform an abortion when, according to the practitioner's reasonable and good-faith professional judgment, based on the facts of the patient's case, the patient is within 24 weeks from the commencement of pregnancy, or there is an absence of fetal viability, or the abortion is necessary to protect the patient's life or health. In other words, Abortion is now legal in the state of New York at any point until actual live birth, so long as anyone in the process deems it to be detrimental to the health of the mother or deems the child not viable, a term that means different things to different people. And if this wasn't frightening enough, later in the legislation, great pains are taken to remove abortion from all criminal law. This means that there's no such thing as an illegal abortion in the state of New York because if the child isn't born, it's not a death. Now, 
Please hear me when I say, I don't want to oversimplify the issue or portray that this is an easy topic. I don't know what I would do if I were faced with having to make a choice between a spouse and a child when complications with childbirth occur. I've never had to. But in my mind, the following is very clear. First, the unborn child is a life that is just as much dignity as any other life. If we don't treat that life with respect and some sense of sanctity, then we must reflect on the sociopathic behavior associated with an inability to recognize that life. Second, removing abortion from criminal law opens the door to all kinds of atrocities associated with the death of an unborn child. This means that if a woman is abused in the state of New York to the point that the child dies, that man cannot be charged with the murder of the baby. He just made it unviable. Third, while I know that there's a lot of anger and sadness around this latest development, we must be careful to handle this like Christians. We must stand firm in our confession that this legislation is wrong and children must be protected. But we must not fall into the trap of using this as a means to let out our frustrations and anger on those who disagree with us. If you want to affect change, then work toward listening and effectively communicating the truth. All the shouting does is make you look like one of the politicians that put us here in the first place. Be different. Be better. And finally, this has to be said. To light up the top of the World Trade Center in pink as a celebration of this law is a shameful act of defiance upon the American people. Look, when according to the latest Gallup poll, only 13% of Americans would approve of such a change to legislation, the spire of that building looked less like a monument and more like a middle finger. May God have mercy. That's all for this episode of the Bold Speak Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Make sure you connect with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at forward slash The Bold Speak. Also, make sure you check out our website, www.theboldspeak.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to this channel and get the latest information, updates, and content as they are released. And if you have any questions, comments, want to get involved in the conversation, please make sure you do so in the comments down below. Until next time, everyone, I am Anthony Creedon, and that is The Bold Speak. <laughs>